Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. We have a really, really gripping and unforgettable episode for you this week on Changes. It's all about cults or being born into a cult. My guest is Bexie Cameron. She was born into a cult called the Children of God. This cult began in the US in the late 1960s. Its founder was a guy called David Berg, and he told members that God was love and love was sex, so there should be no limits, regardless of age or relationship. Children of God claimed to have 10,000 full-time members in 130 communities around the world by the 1970s. There's some famous ex-members of the cult. People who were born into it include Rose McGowan and Wacken Phoenix. Two prolific members of Children of God who headed up the PR for the cult in the UK were Bexie's parents. Bexie's mum had 12 children in all. And for the first decade or so of Bexie Cameron's life, she pretty much only knew what her parents and the other leaders of the Children of God told her. She believed the end of the world was coming, that she would die in the apocalypse at 15, and that she had to prepare. They lived in big communes all over the place, moving very quickly from one commune to the next, and the circumstances in the commune were so dire. Dozens of kids sharing cramped bedrooms, gruelling schedules of prayer and devotion and manual labour, of course. And there's so many shocking things that you learn about just how the children were treated by the leaders, how incredibly unsafe they were, exposed to these people who were damaged and wanting to hurt them. The things that Bexie Cameron was subjected to in The Children of God are harrowing to hear about. There's violence and there's sexual abuse in this conversation. Physical punishment, physical beatings, exorcisms, it's all just horrific. But I wouldn't, of course, be speaking to Bexie today if she wasn't able to talk about her experiences from a place of peace, relative peace anyway. There is light, there is resolution at the end of all the trauma she suffered and she's written about it in a book called Cult Following. It tells the story of the trauma of her childhood right through to her break from the cult that she was raised in and the incredible journey she went on years later to make sense of what happened. And you're going to hear her right now telling us this same thing. I began by asking Bexy when she first realised that the world she was being brought up in was not normal. Enter the podcast, Bexy Cameron. I can remember times when I thought that I was normal, which is like probably my earliest memories. Um, normal, such a weird word, isn't it? But like my earliest memories of feeling like I was in a, in a family where I didn't understand that I was in a cult. Um, I remember being in India and being on the back of my sister's bicycle and just driving through fields and having like the sunlight shining down on us and just remembering being as a 
person. And that was before all of the the understanding of me being in an Armageddonist cult came in. That's before I knew that I was being raised as a martyr. That was before I knew that I was supposed to die as a teenager. All of that stuff came afterwards. So it was probably the other way around of feeling normal and then feeling that actually I was being told I was a chosen one, which is such a loaded thing to say to a child in so many ways. We could unpick that. But yeah, so it's probably that way around. And then there was trickles of things that would come in. We would be in normal society and we'd see things like my parents would go up what you might call Bible bashing or evangelizing is what they would call it. And you'd see things that were normal shopping centers, children in school, school uniforms, things that were another world to me. And that's, you know, another part of realizing that I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't part of that world, but it's, it's a little bit blurred, I would say. Can you give us the broad strokes of the children of God? Like, what do they believe? And what was the kind of rule parameters that you grew up in? So the things that they're famous for, they're famous for being a really damaging, exploitative group. David Berg was the leader and he was just wild when it came to what he believed. He believed that the women should be prostitutes for Jesus. He called them hookers for Jesus, exploited them to bring in money and new members, which is probably one of the things that makes them stand out as a cult. It's quite unusual to have stuff like that kind of sewn into the beliefs. They believed that the end of the world was coming. They believed that the rapture was going to happen. And when they started, it was in 1968. And it was around a time when, you know, I, I can imagine the world was ready for that kind of change. Vietnam, what was happening on the political landscape, all of the riots and stuff. You can almost imagine that they were, that cults were almost needed in some ways. So I can see why people like my parents joined at that point. It didn't start out as a group that was all about exploiting women and children. It started out as a revolution for Jesus. And that wasn't unique. How they morphed into a group that became so damaging was unique in some ways. But essentially how I experienced it rather than how my parents experienced it, which was, was this kind of hippie revolution and, you know, revolution for Jesus and let's all shout woe in the streets, was just as a child that was raised in something really separate. That meant no television, no music, no education. We were allowed to read because we had to read David Berg's words, which he wrote a lot of the mo letters the mo letters oh my god don't eat i mean we could do a whole hour conversation just about the mad ramblings of that man um but yeah so my experience of it was entirely different from my parents i think they had this like moments of enlightenment and purpose but i just grew up in something that was separate and contained and very controlled and no freedom of speech no freedom to be what i see children being now that playfulness that we had our imaginations which was our escape. But other than that, it was an extremely controlled environment. So yeah, I think there's a real kind of contrast in what adults can experience in joining a cult and what children can experience in just being born into one. And then coupled with that was this idea of the Armageddon coming. And for my parents, again, that was something that meant that they were going to have this moment of glory, of rising up to Jesus and, you know, ultimate, like ultimateness. And for us, we were raised thinking we were going to die in this war. And there was a specific time when you would die? Was it 14? Yeah, so obviously with David Berg being a bit of a madman, I say a bit, a lot of a madman, it changed every time, every seven years. So when I was seven, I was going to die as a 14-year-old. And that was kind of the the time when they, they thought that we were all going to die. It was kind of like the, the, the mid-90s was when it was all going to happen and kick off. 
So I had this date looming over me um, and, you know, they added this exciting, almost childlike comic book side to it, which was you're going to have superpowers and you're going to breathe fire and you have lasers coming out of your eyes. And growing up as a, you know, I think most children have these visions of, you know, perhaps one day we'll have superpowers. And, you know, again, it's gutting when you hit 14 and all you get is a period instead of lasers. It's, you know, it's devastating. But it's the language that I think can be quite insidious and damaging to, and and also just just to think that you're you're gonna be special you're unique but also you're completely controlled I suppose you could draw parallels to being in a toxic relationship where the person tells you that you're amazing but they're the only person that would ever love you you know that kind of du- duality of like toxic love it's kind of like that in some ways if I was going to put it into something that maybe a lot of people have experienced but yeah it was um it was this two sides of the coin of being really special but also knowing that you're going to you're going to die and not being allowed to speak as far as like not being able to have freedom of speech but also being kind of almost put on a pedestal what about the the more kind of practical sides of living like the geography of your childhood is interested these quick sudden moves like it's 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 all kind of leads to feeling unsafe like having the rug pulled from under you a lot do you know what's really weird and i'm 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 assuming that we're talking about when we would flee in the middle of the right. night because yeah, the, going from commune so basically, to commune. Yeah. yeah. So we, the, the children of God was outlawed in loads of different countries to give context. Yeah. So when the journalists or when the police would knock on our door, that would be it. The house would be considered burned, almost like we were KGB spies in some ways, but way less cool. But we'd have something called a flea bag that was always packed and it had essentials in it. And we would just get in the van and we would run and we would go underground for however long it would take before they would find and start a new commune or cell. And that's because we weren't really legal in a lot of places we lived. So we grew up in India, Mauritius, loads of parts of Africa, um, and then the UK. And yeah, so we had this kind of fleeing in the middle of the night mentality. It happened like two or three times in a row, maybe more actually. But the weird thing about when you're in a, for me anyway, being in an environment that was that controlled, any type of change was exciting because any type of change meant something could get better. It wasn't like we were in a nice environment and then change equals fear. Because I think change equals fear to a lot of people, doesn't it? It's like any, even you know, if we don't know what it is, it's like terrifying. But for me and for us kids, we were like, oh, anything could happen. Anything could happen. And it was almost like this optimism that came with these with these big changes, with these kind of knocks on the door. And every time we'd be in the back of the van, I'd be like, oh, something exciting is going to happen, with, you know, which, which is probably just childlike optimism, which I think kids are just fantastic for that, regardless of where they're raised. But yes, it was almost like the opposite of that. So I feel quite malleable to changes now, maybe, maybe less so than I was when I was a kid. But, um, but yeah, it was exciting, even though inevitably and you'll know this because you've read the book the majority of the times that we had these big changes it wasn't because there was something better at the end of it unfortunately yeah now where were your mum and dad in all of this and what was your relationship with them like as a young child my relationship with my parents really changed growing up when we were in certain parts of the world we were in much smaller communes that had less constrictions 
places like India and Africa, we'd be in a house with like three families, for example. And everything was, you know, we had all the really toxic, damaging literature that was being flown around, all the stuff that you will have known about because you, you, you've seen it now, but all the things like the, the Mo letters that were all about, you know, flirty fishing, what the, you know, the pornographic images that we were shown as children. There was a lot of kind of even child pornography that we had just readily available. That was just part of our daily life as kids, um, which in itself is just a whole thing that has its, you know, so many damaging endpoints to it, as you can imagine. But um, during those times, even though we were in these capsules of weirdness, if you like, it felt kind of normal because we did, our parents were still semi-responsible for us. When I reached about eight years old and we moved to the UK is when we were moved into big communes with really strict rules. That's when things went really dark, when my parents stopped being responsible for us as their children. And they basically handed over us children to the group. And that's when my relationship with my parents dramatically changed to the point that it never went back to how it was when I was a, a young child. But it also could have been because of the level of consciousness that you get when you start to get to that age. I think nine, 10 year olds are so much smarter than a lot of times we give them credit for. I think about myself at that age and almost that fly on the wall feeling of being like, they don't know that I know. They still see me as this teeny tiny child that's not taking things in. But um, the level of consciousness I think I had at that age was to really start to understand where my parents were in the hierarchy, how they, how they were behaving, and the fact that the group that I was in was extremely damaging. That all started to kind of really flood in. So if we go now to your biggest childhood change, it feels like this is the point where you can tell us about that period in your life. Yeah. I suppose I'll tell you about the dark side of the change before the lightness comes in. Yeah. The dark side of the change was um, the children of God started to realize there was a rebellion amongst the children and the teenagers mainly. Kids amazingly knew that what was happening wasn't right, even though we were separate. So this rebelliousness started to flow through a group. This group was massive, remember? We were in over 100 countries. We had over 10,000 members. It was huge. And this swell of rebellion started to happen. And so their reaction to that, instead of like asking the kids, oh, you know, how do you feel? What do you want? Do we need to make changes ourselves? Was to clamp down. And they did this by creating these things called teen camps that they put kids who were wayward or rebellious into. And they wanted to make us better versions of end time soldiers, martyrs, whatever you want to call us, by any and all means possible. And those are the words they used, any and all means possible. And that included things like isolating children, sometimes up to months at a time, included, you know, basic stuff like manual labor, but also things that were much more violent, like public beatings. Some of the adults that were drawn to the group because of what the group preached by its very nature, it would attract predators. We were in these camps with adults that by the nature of what they wanted to do, they were cruel because they wanted to be. It was almost like they were excited by doing it. And I was put into one of these camps and I was 10 years old. My parents completely handed us over to this camp and I was put on something that they called silence restriction. That was on top of all the other things like the violence, the beatings, everything else. And Bexy, sorry, can you just contextualise the house you were in, the amount of people that were there? Just give us a picture of what it was like to live in that commune. So this camp this commune, this compound, whatever you want to call it that I was in, yeah. very strangely was actually on the countryside of the UK. 
it was, I believe, just outside of rugby, although I'll never know the address because we were always told different names for the compounds we were in, the Birmingham home, etc. Everything was codified so that we never knew where we were. And so that if anyone ever ran away, we couldn't blow the house or tell them the address. So there was that air of secrecy that was around it. The commune that I was in was an old set of like a farmhouse and barns that we'd done up ourselves when we moved in. There was no roof on one part of it. There was no electricity. We had to build this from the ground up. And there would have been about 100 people in it. We had dormitories with bunk beds, with basically kids stacked on top of each other, which I don't think is unusual. But the way, when I think about the square footage of the rooms that we had and how many children were piled in, it probably looked something similar to a refugee camp rather than what we would imagine as a boarding school. These things called trundle beds, which would slide out with like almost a concertina envelope with a child on each one, just kids stacked up. So very packed full and mainly full of teenagers. And then these adults that were the hierarchy at the top these leaders, that everything they said was the word of God. And so within this, you can imagine being a child that's then put onto silence restriction, which was no speaking, no eye contact, which I think was one of the most difficult things for me to understand. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. I couldn't do hand motions. If you dropped a plate, for example, I couldn't pick it up and give it to you. That's considered communication. It basically meant do not exist within any room that you're in. And so to go through a commune where there's that many people and that many young people around you as well, and to become invisible, for me, I think that's probably the closest I've ever come to, to losing my mind. I really did start to unravel and, and, and have like a crisis of identity, which sounds bizarre to say that about a 10-year-old, but it really was, it really was happening to me. And then that went on the sign restriction itself went on for 11 months so just shy of a year so nearly a year yeah. of being invisible not talking yeah. not communicating no eye contact mm -hmm. yep um and and that had all happened because of me being found out i was lying which is when i had my like i had my, my exorcism as a nine-year-old and you know had my demons that they thought they had that i had in me cast out and then went on to this further form of punishment. So they packed quite a lot into this year. And it really was up until this day, the hardest year that I've ever, I've ever been through. And that was the dark side of the biggest change of my life, coming up to being 11 years old. And then age 11 is when the, the big, big thing happened, which was the children of God went into a massive court case and we had to kind of come out of the woodwork. There's a really long story that goes along with it, but essentially they couldn't hide anymore. And my parents became the public face of the group. And with that, they decided to let the first journalist ever into the walls or into the gates of the children of God. And this is where my kind of big moment of grace, if you like, or moment of change takes place. This man comes to stay with us and um, he's very gentle, he's tall, he's from The Guardian. And we had days and days of being like, the Guardian journalist is coming. I didn't, I, can't, I couldn't remember his name for years after that. But I was like, the Guardian journalist is coming. And we all got excited because an outsider was gonna be in our house. And it was just like, again, the kids being so excited at anything that was different. We had been schooled in how to answer questions. If he asks you about the mothers being prostitutes, what do you say? Do you go to school? What do you say? Would you rather have a normal childhood? What do you say? Media training, essentially. And um, he sat me down for my interview, unattended. And he said to me, 
didn't ask me any of the questions that they told me he might ask. He just said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And because you know the context of that, you know that I wasn't raised thinking that I could grow up or that I would be an adult. And no one had ever asked me that before. And this man just seemed like he, um, like he wasn't lying. And I think kids are so good at spotting when someone's lying to them, aren't they? And I was just, I was like, maybe this is, maybe this is the truth. And it was a moment of epiphany. And again, I think it sounds ridiculous to say that about a child, but really it was probably one of the biggest moments of my life of feeling like there was a crack in the world that I had been experiencing and the things that I was being taught, perhaps I needed to start to unlearn. And that really was the beginning of my trajectory out of there. That was the kind of moment where I started questioning much more and starting to start to think maybe I'm not mad because I had up until that point been thinking that I needed to potentially be broken by Jesus or broken by them or to, to experience this revelatory moment that my parents and everyone else had been speaking about. And then it was like, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe they're not. And that really was my kind of big, big change as a, as a child to escape essentially. In this realization that the world around you was starting to feel wrong, because you talk in the book as well as like during your silence, that that realization that it didn't feel right, that you knew that it was fundamentally something about this was not right. You had eleven siblings, right? Yeah, that's right. Could you turn to them and, and where were they in this story? My siblings are just the best thing in the world like I can't even tell you how incredible they are and growing up when we were in India and Africa we were this pack and really they were my protection my older brothers and sisters were the ones like you know that the the children of God was packed full of predators and people that were you know essentially they attracted pedophiles what is it that you called them we called them watch outs watch watch outs outs. Yeah, yeah because you have to watch out for them so we didn't have the vernacular you know we didn't have the word the pedophile we just knew that there were certain people that you needed to look out for and you know that was our kind of childish way of being like don't hang around that guy he's a watch out and you know it was passed on because i've got five older brothers and sisters who passed this kind of knowledge on and, and and we passed it on to the younger ones and it was like you we look out for each other with this wolf pack that care for each other and I think that it was incredible that I know that it sounds probably ridiculous in some ways but I have a very lucky experience of growing up in the children of God in comparison to some people yeah some of the kids that came out of that some of the kids didn't even make it out of that Mm. you know it was such a damaging group and really through the power of having these siblings and I really did have a bit of a (laughs) sounds ridiculous to say but charmed existence within it my brothers and sisters when we when we went into these more kind of controlled communes in the UK was when everything was stripped apart. The family unit isn't really allowed to exist within something where the cult itself is the family is the best way to describe it. So we were pulled apart from each other. And I think the whole idea of putting us into camps and putting us on science restriction is because there is no conferring, there is no protection. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They used to have inquisition weeks where we would all have to tell on each other on pieces of paper and you'd have to write down everything that they were like, if anyone writes down something that you haven't written down, even if they've written down something that they've seen you do that you haven't written down, then everyone gets it. So these, it was all about tearing us apart, all about making us feel entirely alone. And making you watch when they were beaten as well. Mm. That scene when your brother was getting beaten with a paddle. I just, yeah, it's horrific. It's so horrific. It's, I think that, I mean, obviously now that I'm out of it and I've looked into these types of things a lot more as an adult, 
there is very clear to me these the, almost the schematics of these these types of sure. abuse isn't it it's like mm. of course you make people watch because it's almost like i would have preferred to have gotten a beating than to have watched one so it in doing that it's it pulls on everybody in a different way within within the room and it, it, some of these things feel like or sound like war crimes in a way 100% yeah or well known versions of torture there you go yeah, yeah exactly that so let's talk about you finding a way to come out could you talk me through the scene where you're working in the press room or the media room and you discover the public newspaper clippings and how that made you feel? Yeah, I mean, well, this is probably another moment of real realisation, you know, being, I think I would have been about 13 years old at this point. And as I said, my parents were in the in the public eye and I was working in the office as you say, and I opened up this file and within the file was all the clippings of these newspapers. And I, for the first time, saw how people out there saw us. You know, I was in a bubble. I didn't know. I only heard how we talked about them, the systemized, the evil, the horror of Babylon, all of that stuff. And then I read the newspaper clippings and it was in black and white in front of me how people saw us, you know, it, basically that we, we were a group led by a paedophile and a predator the man that I was taught to call grandpa or the king or Moses David, or all these other grand terms was now here in black and white being described as a predator. The way that they described us kids was, you know, as, as robots and morons because we all kind of sounded the same and looked the same and were, and the, you know, the way that they described my parents and even the way my parents described the group, I saw it all in front of me and I was just like, Oh my God, this is how we're seen. This is how the world looks at us. And I'd known that things weren't right, but I had never understood that this is how the world had really seen us as this evil, damaging, dark group, which obviously now that I'm out of it, and I knew then in different ways, now I'm out of it, I'm like, oh my goodness, of course that's what we were. Mm -hmm. But to have it in front of you was a real kind of moment of like revelation, if you like. Mm. And how did you end up escaping? Well... I mean, we were in a, in a group at that point that was weirdly on the edge of a village. And there were all these teenagers. You can imagine if you were a teenager, if I was a teenager in a village and a cult moved in, I mean, it would just be insane, wouldn't it? You'd be, I'd be doing exactly what they were doing, which was, you know, smoking weed and sniffing glue and waiting for the culties to come out. And, um, and I ended up making friends with a boy who really, I mean, he again was a kind of moment of grace. He had read all the newspaper articles and he was right. just like, we've got to get you out of here. Mm. It's like there's, and, and I know that the majority of the girls that I'd known who left because of how we were raised in this world that was hyper-sexualized and very, you know, exploitative. Most of the girls that I knew who left, they didn't have any education. They ended up becoming sex workers. And that's mm. kind of, you know, what I was like, I don't want that to be my trajectory. You know, I'd seen, I'd grown up with that. I didn't want it to be my kind of story. Um, and that's no shade on anyone that had to do that. I mean, you do what you have to do, but he was just like, this is what you need to do and how you like get, you need to get a job, do it when the lights are out in the commune. They went to sleep at 9, 9pm. 9 I started working in a job, which was mental in itself. In a pub of all places, like. Yes. Yes. To go from working in a kitchen in a cult, which is what my job was 
to working behind the bar at Mosquito Coast in Leicester. <laughs> he would drop me off and I would be serving B-52s and slippery nipples in a nightclub. And it was just insane. Wow. I mean, the good thing about it was that I had an American accent. So yeah. I could I could get away with the fact that I didn't know what I was doing, you know, put on some lipstick, pretend I was 18 and I was like, you know, studying and all this kind of and stuff. And you were 15, right? Mm-hmm. I was 15. Yeah. Wow. The thing that didn't scare me was hard work because we'd been doing it our whole lives, but I didn't understand about money or a till or students or any of that stuff. And just Mm. being in the lights and music and just being thrown into that and then having to go back to a cult, (laughs) being driven back. I mean, it clearly wasn't sustainable, but you know, when you're a teenager, there's something about you where you think you're invincible. Even, even as a cult kid, I thought that I was like cleverer than everyone, which is ridiculous in hindsight, but they found out. And I had had this plan of leaving in this empowered way, head held high. You know, I had this figure of money. I needed to get 600 pounds and 600 pounds was going to be enable me to have this new life. And I was going to, the day I turned 16, that was going to be it. I wouldn't be a minor anymore. And da, 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 da. And I got caught and I was gutted. And what happened? Instead of walking out on my head held high, I, um, I got voted out. So they got all of the house together, everyone over 18. And it was a unanimous vote that they had to kick me out because I would be a bad influence on the rest of the kids there. They didn't want people like me in groups like that, that are doing things like that. It's excommunicatable events, essentially. And also I'd lied and all of these things, which were absolutely not allowed. So they kicked me out. Um, and I, I shut down from that completely when it happened mm. because I... It wasn't even like I was heartbroken. I think the heartbreak of that moment came a lot later on. You know, sometimes mm, that happens. Sure. Your, body, your body saves Too it. Too much adrenaline. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I was like, I just shut down from it and I went straight into survival mode. So, I mean, you have to remember the context of this is that your parents have, have, have pretty much just kicked you out at the age of 15. Yes, yes. But I think as well, like with with far as the abandonment that had happened with my parents, the abandonment of them had kind of happened so much, so much earlier that by the time this happened... I was literally like, you can go back yourselves. Yeah, like, and, and, and significantly for the first time in your story, you talk back to them. First time ever. And you tell them how you really feel. And that feels like a huge moment. Do you know what it was? I had been talking like that to them in my head for years. Mm. Not the swear words, which I had only just recently learned, but properly. But um, I'd been talking, talking back to them. You know, I think most people go through life with moments happening you know, in the same moment, twice over how you feel and how you react or, you know what I mean? The separation between, what, you know what I mean? Like, oh, all right then, while well, you're actually just, you know, playing nice. But this was the first time that I really let rip with the real, almost like this thing inside me tore out in front of them. And they saw the real me for the first time and they were disgusted by it. Hmm. They were disgusted by the girl that they saw in front of them that actually was just fuming. She wasn't upset. She was, she was outraged. She was angry. Yeah. And that anger was exactly what I needed to feel then because it spurred me on. It got me out. It made me survive the next two years, which were extremely difficult, but they were fueled by that just need to survive rather than going into like, I'm upset about my parents or I've just been betrayed or I've just been abandoned. That didn't kick in probably till my late twenties, really, when I was in a position to kind of start unpicking it. But yeah, so it was, unfortunately for me, I really wanted that empowered moment, but life often doesn't give you the things that you you want, you know? Um, So yeah. 
And tell us a little bit about that transition into the real world. Oh, goodness. I mean, I just had to change everything about myself. Right. I would just do things like, the first thing I did was, this is a physical side, I chopped off all my hair. I had like cult hair. So, so it was known in the cult that the longer that he, David Berg liked long hair on women. Long right? hair was basically the most attractive thing you can have. Like, you're like kind of like, I mean, cults are wonderful. For Knee length hair. All kind of like, yeah. Yes. And I remember standing in front of a sink with a pair of kitchen scissors and just yeah. hacking into this hair. I mean, like I had a massive bush down below to like below my waist, huge, like curly hair, chopping it all off, dyeing it dark purple, trying to get as far away as I could from that kid. I wanted to look different. I wanted to sound different. I'd stand in front of the mirror, emulating the English accent, which I'm still working on and be like, and like mouthing these words and mouthing these swear words and trying to like, you know, the things I'd heard like wellard and things, you know, just little turns of phrase. I thought this will make me fit in. Um, I was like working in the fitting rooms of Topshop at one point and trying on different identities, like people were trying on clothes, like everything. It was just... But where do you go to live when you're 15? So my brother left around the same time. He also got kicked out from another commune and another kid that we knew as well. And the three of us got together... And we were just like, let's just club all of our resources together. And we got this like little flat that we all existed in. I mean, we had nothing. We were living off of milk for um, our first month because we thought that's got enough nutrients to like survive. And the three of us did everything. I mean, like, you know, we, we lied, we stole, we did, we did, we did everything that you can imagine that three kids who don't know what they're doing and don't understand the world that they're in do to exist. And then we started to get jobs. I had a, a job in an Irish bar in two retail shops and it was just like juggling everything and trying to figure out how do I not stand out and trying to invent a past because it's all right for me now in my 30s talking about growing up in a cult when I've got this great life that I'm really happy about but at that point I didn't want anything to do with it you know like three months out of a cult you don't want to be like oh yeah I've just come out of a religious cult not back in like you know the late 90s mental Mm. so um so yeah I basically did everything I possibly could to assimilate night school started coming in just like just doing just working my nuts off to try and appear and sound and be normal When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Did you have any idea then, or was it starting to form, like what you wanted to do with your life? I think I had this vision. If I could get through secretarial school and I could become a legal secretary, that was like the be all and end wow. all of everything. I love the, pre- the, the precision of that. I, yeah, I was like, that is it. And then as I started to kind of like get more jobs and explore the world and I started to write, like around 18, I started to write, but only little bits and bobs. And I started to realize that actually I had this kind of creative side to me that if I don't do something with it, it can turn into very negative energy very quickly. So I got into art school just through I said, I think I got the teachers to pity me. Essentially, I came in with like a massive portfolio of stuff and was just like, please. And then started to work my way into the kind of career that I have now. And I think for me, the reason when I much later on, I got into things like documentary making and filmmaking. If I wanted to be really, I don't know, not poetic, but I, I suppose in some ways thinking about the fact that I grew up in this world that was so contained where I didn't experience anything, to then want to ex- understand and explore all the stories of the world and also to kind of understand how to, you know, as a director, not just, it's not about really having a voice, it's about allowing people to have the platform to have their own in mm. some ways. Mm. So I think in some, like obviously that's a very long like journey to get there. But when I think about why the connections between what I do now and what happened then, it feels like it makes so much sense to have ended up where I, where I am now, if you like. Tell me about your adult change then. Well, this goes back in some ways, the adult change goes back in some ways to that change, that first change as an 11 year old, the big epiphany. Right. I was, my late twenties and I was in an absolute mess and everything that I wasn't dealing with, all the stuff that I hadn't dealt with was rearing its ugly head and just demanding to be processed. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know that therapy, I I wasn't just, I just wasn't in that kind of, you know, doing the work as people call it. I Mm. wasn't there, but I knew I wanted to do something with my past. Um, So I decided I was going to track down that journalist that I told you about and I was going to thank him because it felt it felt like a really positive way of looking at the past. So I spent a week kind of like researching, not kind of, I was researching him. I couldn't remember his name, but I knew he worked for The Guardian and I knew the year that he came to stay with us. And so I found the religious correspondent and then this crazy moment of having dinner with some of my friends and telling them that I was looking for this journalist and they were like oh we know someone who who knows blah 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 what's his name and I said I think his name is Walter Schwartz and my friend said oh my god we know Walter Schwartz Walter Schwartz was the dad of a friend of mine no way somebody that I've been friends with for five years wow it's one of those things that I'm so pleased that people were there for because it sounds like it's made up. Yeah. But I, I mean, his son, I'd actually dated. I met him in 333 clubbing, which was just, you know, a little wow. extra. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And, um, and before I knew it, I was at Walter's house spending a weekend with him on his farm and being in the presence of this man that had changed my life as an 11 year old and just 
just it blew my face off it was mm. I, I, you know when you're experiencing something where you're going, I don't know what is happening but I know that it is big right that right. kind of again whether you want to call it this huge moment of change whether it's grace or whether it's just something cosmic and divine mm. whatever mm. your wheelhouse is it was huge for me and he sat there and he said to me you know you've had this horrible yet incredible and bizarre and different experience mm. of life mm. a perception of the world that potentially most of us will never have and he's like what are you going to do with it and I was like oh god forget about it <laughs> I know. move on put I it know. behind me Walter I was like, I was like thanks Walter cheers for that <laughs> yeah. actually his wife Dot was very much like that she was like she doesn't have to do anything with it for crying out loud mm. she just needs to survive it and that is true not everyone has to do something with their trauma you definitely don't have to do what I did mm. But um, it, it was something that burrowed its way into my head. And I realized that, like, you know, for the weeks after, the months after, I, well, I kept hearing it. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? I actually did have to do something with it. Yeah. Um, and that is the beginning of the big journey that I, um, that I ended up going on to the States. So tell us what was the journey and why did you want to do it in this way? Okay. So the journey was me. And a girlfriend of mine that I met in film school in, in Berlin, she was in film school, buying a truck and joining cults across America. We, I mean, again, bonkers. <laughs> bonkers when I think about it now. So silly, but such an adventure. And I think there were so many different parts to it. I did want an adventure. I'm not going to pretend mm. that I didn't. I'm not going to mm. pretend that all of this was this kind of like soul searching, altruistic or like, you know, other, yeah. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, there's a part of me that loves the idea of becoming Selma and Louise, yeah. you know, driving across the States, doing mad stuff. I mean, it kind of sounds like a film. And also there was another part of me that had this burning desire to understand what was happening and to kind of unpick my childhood because I think sometimes it's easier to look at other people's stuff than it is your own. I didn't want to root around in my childhood and be like, well, why did mommy and daddy abandon me? I was sick of my childhood. I wanted to understand it through other people's experiences. And also what an adventure. So I, um, I chose groups specifically that had kids in them because I really was interested in the child's perspective. So much is done on why people join cults, why adults join cults and, you know, their perception of that. And that's great because it is still very important. It's very important not to hold people with this sense of other because we're all looking for something. It might not be the same thing, but we're all searching, I believe. But I really wanted to see what kids were experiencing. And I think there was a part of me as well, and this might sound quite dark. I didn't want to validate my childhood through other people's experiences now. But I also, when you've left something that was that, bananas to grow up in you kind of want to know was it real you know is it did that did that happen it seems so disconnected from my life so I really wanted to know if it was it was still going on and it was 
you know, not in the same way, but there are so many groups that still exist and so many groups that had kids in them. So we drove around joining groups. I mean, we joined so many different types of groups. We joined groups that were very reminiscent of my own ones that were Armageddonist groups that were left, believed that the world was coming to an end. We, you know, we went to meet up with groups that were, that were channel aliens. We did yogic groups in the mountains. We did, we did all kinds of things because I wanted a wide spectrum to understand what connected everybody to each other as well as to understand my place within it. And what did you discover about your own childhood, like upon seeing these other cults and being in them? Well, it, I discovered some creepy stuff, like in the 12 tribes, I, which is one of the Armageddonist groups, very similar to my own, but without the kind of like right. sexual deviant stuff. I discovered that I actually felt really comfortable there, which was weird. <laughs> well, maybe not. If you're conditioned to be in an environment like that. Yeah. Kind of makes I, sense. I slept really well, which really freaks me out when I think about yeah. that. And yeah. so that was kind of like part of the creepy side of it. But if I go from the more larger perspective of what did I understand about people in general, there was yeah. a lot that I learned that really changed me. Right. I started to understand why people join, which, you know, I think is, is again, comes back to the stuff that we were talking about, the the human needs that we all experience, the need right. to find community and purpose, the need to find our people, which I think is huge. Yeah. Um, the need to know that we're doing something with our life. Um, I worry about that stuff all the time. Am I, what is my purpose? How do right. I fit into all of this? Right. Right. And that connected people that whether they were in, you know, a cosmic group in Sedona to people who were in a, you know, the, the bride of Christ in Tennessee, that was still the big the search for purpose, basically. A search for yeah. purpose. And also when you join a group, you're now told, and you have to believe this, otherwise you wouldn't join, that you are the only ones and that you have the right way. And that that gives you the sense of elitism of going, oh my God, we're better than everyone. How brilliant is that? To have that feeling. Mm-hmm. I go around most of my most of my life feeling worse than everyone and feeling like, you know, <laughs> that, that feeling of like, oh God, I'm going to get found out. But then there was the experience of the kids and the kids was, again, you know, every group was different, but the feelings, the, 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 the attributes of a childhood within a group had similarities. The no choice, being taken along for the ride, being raised in something that was an experiment, you know, not having that feeling of enlightenment or purposefulness. You don't really get that as a kid. You're just there. It's your mm. normal. And um, oftentimes, and not within every group, the kids were being raised as, as the, the pure thing that was supposed mm. to change everything. Mm. And that comes with such a huge responsibility. And it right. also comes with things like extreme discipline and oppression in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And was that hard for you seeing that played out from, from this new perspective? It's devastating actually. Yeah. yeah. There was like a certain group where I knew the kids were getting really badly treated. They were getting, you know, but corporal punishment is actually allowed in the States, which is still, I mean, it's quite baffling to me that how many countries are still allowed in, but these kids were essentially part of their belief was to, to beat them. And they did it basically daily. And, you know, we'd, we'd seen footage of this from an undercover journalist that had infiltrated the group in Germany. And it all started to happen while we were in this group. All of the newspaper articles came out. Oh God, Bexy. And, I, and we were just sitting in our truck going like, how many kids can we pack into the back of this truck? And then being like, this is a felony. If we do this, they're not the criminals. We're the criminals. Mm. And, and talking it through and being like, oh my God, we, we're now talking about 
kidnapping kids. And, and, and you know, it goes from like, oh, we're, we're going on this massive adventure to all of a sudden you're actually discussing committing a felony in the back of a truck. And you're like, okay, actually, you know what? We need to get out of here because nothing good is going to come out of us ending up in jail, which is where that road was leading to. Yeah. Um, and so, and then there's all the crisis of self that I, w- I had in that moment of being, what am I doing? What yeah. am I doing here? What is my yeah. purpose doing? Like, I'm, I'm here with my camera and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make a documentary and I'm going to like, what, well, what for? I can't even help the children that are right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of being completely pointless within that moment, it was devastating to see those kids and devastating to leave them. So you wanted to confront your own family. Mm. Did that happen? Oh God. Yeah. So that was, that was probably, I mean, like having met so many cult leaders by this point and having done four years of this journey, like on and off, that was the most terrifying thing to even comprehend was confronting my parents because, you know, I had been looking for all the answers elsewhere. Mm. I was like, Oh, I'm making a film and it's about other people. And everyone's like, no, it's about you, babes. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, and I all of a sudden was like four years down the line. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. Maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. I do need to go back to the source. My parents not only did all the stuff that they did to me and my siblings, but there's a bigger story attached to it, which is my parents being the public face of this group. And when I think about that, that is such a, it's devastating in a way because yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that's a generation of kids that they didn't protect. And more to the point, they protected the group that was harming children. So there was so, it's so loaded. This, right. this confrontation with my parents really wasn't just about me. But I knew that because they are the public face of the group and because of the fact that people who are in a cult, broad strokes, but they, they aren't speaking from the I, they are speaking from the we, there's no real point in having a dialogue of being like, oh, what happened there? And how did you think? And what did you feel? Because unless that person is talking from the place of I and how I feel, mm. you won't get the truth. You don't right. get that. It's really strange and difficult to kind of describe. And I'm sure most people, we've all seen it when mm. someone is talking from a, a belief mm. rather than mm. self, mm. whether it's a political belief or something that they, has been learned rather than, you instantly lose that connection with them, don't you? When mm. it's like, oh, I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm talking to that belief. And it's like they're with my parents all the time. So I knew what I needed to get what was right for me wasn't a dialogue. It was for them to listen. I needed to stand in front of them and I needed to allow the 10-year-old girl who'd had her voice taken from her for a a year to say her piece, to let them know what it was like from my experience to grow up in that group. Because my experience, like all of our experiences, they they belong to us and no one can argue with them. Mm. There's, There's great power in that. So I told them what what had happened and how I had felt. And it was terrifying and it was empowering. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it (laughs) because confronting your parents and whatever your 
upbringing, childhood, we all have our stuff with our parents. I really do believe that our parents have the potential to be our first loves and our first heartbreak as well, whatever our background. And I had to stand in front of these two people that, you know, had caused me the most damage than and anyone in my life. And probably out of any two people in the world ever will and tell them how I felt. And request that they didn't say anything because I knew in a way that if they did, the spell would be broken. You know, I didn't want the apology because what would they, they be apologizing for in a way? Mm. So, yeah, it was it was really powerful. And, you know, even even allowing the teenage version of me to have her say as well. And, and it probably sounds weird. I'm kind of compartmentalizing these parts of myself. But, you know, the child version of me, that 10 year old, she went, she she was strong. I mean, goodness, I think about what she went through and it's breathtaking. Yeah. And then I think about the teenage version of me having to claw her way out of that group and what she did to survive. I've, I've only just recently started to form a relationship with the teenage version right. of me, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, the teenage version of ourselves can be a bit ugly to look at sometimes because, sure. you know, it's we're rebellious and we're scrappy and it's not as innocent as that child. But yeah, to allow us all to kind of stand there and have that, and have that moment was profound. And it really taught me something about forgiveness, which is it, the, there can be a separation between forgiveness and closure. Mm. Um, I think that, one of the things I heard recently, and it was Michaela Cole that said it was, she was talking about the difference between, you know, um, the if you're sexually assaulted, do not rely on the judicial system to find your way to closure. You know, don't rely on justice to find closure. And I think that that kind of stands in, mm. in, in such an important way. Mm. Because there is no justice for what has happened. My parents have never been accountable. But through how I feel about myself, and how I've explored my own upbringing and what I have been able to carve out of that, there has been not only closure, but such, such incredible growth. Like writing this book, for example, wow, what a gift to myself. Like, I, I mean, I, that's such a weird way to say it, but it, it, I loved it and it changed me. Mm. It really changed me to write that book. Um, and that was, that was amazing to have that, to be able to have that experience. What did you say to your parents on that bench in Margate? I, I think it was just an unpacking of, of everything that had happened and mm. the, the unpacking of, of what, it, what it meant to, to grow up in that in controlled environment mm. because they would have seen it from the outside. They would have seen it as almost the perpetrators, if you like, but they don't know what it was like to be a child and to experience not having a voice. They didn't know what it was like to feel controlled and to miss out on an education. They didn't know what it was like to leave and not know anything. And I wanted them to understand that that was the consequences of their decision. I mean, my mum made the decision to join that group within five hours. That is breathtaking to me to think that. She still is in the group now. She made a decision in five hours that she stands by to this day. It's bonkers, isn't it? Wow. Um, and I wanted to, to know what the consequences of that decision were and the decisions that she'd made along the way. In that passage where you describe this meeting with your parents and in the dialogue, it's quite interesting how you speak to them because you say, I want to forgive you for this. I want mm. to forgive you for this. Have you forgiven them? 
I have, I think that what is interesting for me is forgiveness seems to come in waves. Right. I, I see it as a very changeable, movable thing. And there will be days where I feel like I'm in it. And I'll, there'll be days, you know, in a similar way to, to how grief can kind of come in and out. Right. And in that, that some days it's, it over, overwhelms you. There'll be sometimes, for example, especially with launching the book, for example, so much of the past has been I'm sure. kind of come back up. Yeah. You know, there's been the, the articles in the Times, for example, that have really gone into kind of granular detail about all the things that happen with the children of God. And it's very easy for me to read something like that and not forgive. And I'm back in that kind of like, oof. Yeah. And then there are days where, where I, I feel a level of forgiveness for what they've done to me, but that I think has to be separated from what they've done to the, it's not my place to forgive them to what they did to a whole generation of kids. I don't feel mm. that's, you know, such a bigger story than me. Mm. Um, and it's such a bigger responsibility for them than mm. what they did to their own children. There's so much about reading the book and learning about your story that I found shocking. And some, some moments that, that you talk about just in a very matter of fact way really just hit home. And one of those was when your sister Kate was pregnant at the age of 16 and you tell us that your mother was pregnant at the same time. Oh yeah. With her 12th, 12th child? Yeah, 13? 12th child. 12th that's child. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's, a, there's a passage where you talk about women in the cult, always pregnant, always breastfeeding or always losing babies. Yes. And it just, it, it was just incredibly powerful reading that and just the, the, the kind of reality of that. Yeah. You know, you've given me shivers the way that you've just said it there. Sometimes you hear your words like, yeah. but yeah, I think it's such a form of control in a lot of ways. I mean, sure. children in some ways are, you know, they, they, the greatest gift, but I think within the group that I grew up in, it was just such a patriarchal, toxic kind of environment. And to keep women within that you know, they called it going for gold, having sex without contraception. You know, if you use the pull-out method, it was like, you know, uh, silver. But if you use contraception, it was like bronze. So that these kind of, everything had this strange, wow. I know, it's so yeah. weird, isn't it? It's so weird. But yeah, so it was that, it's that kind of like, so many of the kids I grew up with are, are from families of like 10 or 8 or 12 or, you know, it's it's a form of, of really keeping, if you imagine you're a woman in the, in the group, how are you going to leave if you've got that many kids? Right. You want to leave your husband? I mean, it's a trap. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It is a real trap. But ironically for you, it provided you with this sense of security, your, your siblings. And, and, and I, I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, how, like, how are they now? Where are they now? Is oh. anyone still in the cult? No, they're all out and they're all okay. brilliant. I've got, okay. um, I've got eight that live in London Wow. and um, they are all like just, that's so smart, so funny, so brilliant. When we meet up, it's like we all become the children that we kind of weren't allowed to be. And we, we play all up. We still play our cult games, to be honest with you. We play games that are just like involve like a singular potato or like, you know, like a piece of paper or whatever. Just, it's just we're, we're very, very silly and funny. And we, to be honest with you, the way that we talk about the group is, I suppose, you know, that kind of gallows humor, very dark very kind of like, oh, like not twisted sense of humor, but we, we, we rip the piss out of it. We always have. We, even when we were kids, we would, we had our kind of like bubble between us and them by making fun of the, the people, you know, the adults, the oppressors, you know, to, to, to as much as we possibly could. And it's one of those things that when I think about, you know, people are like, oh, would you, you know, I, I'd never let a child experience what I experienced. No way. I'd cross over cock holes, whatever, to stop a child from going through what we went through. But I wouldn't swap a single, like, 
brother or sister or any like if if you told me I wasn't gonna have any of that like one of them and I could have a different childhood I'd go through it all again because they're just the best and if there's one massive and immense gift that I've been given it's them you know they're just so good I can't even they just yeah I can't even talk about them they're so brilliant and and like do you ever wonder and maybe this isn't a healthy thing to wonder but like what would have happened if you hadn't managed to escape I mean the group now has kind of fizzled out to just a bunch of geriatrics that have been that has they, anyone has anyone gone to jail has anyone paid yes price? Yeah, yeah 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 there has been not as many people as as should have because I was uh researching this when I was writing the book and there's been 11 people that have gone to jail for essentially paedophilia and child rape, etc. Nobody of the upper echelons has ever been held accountable. But it's very difficult to try to take a cult to court, essentially, because yeah. it's all about, well, who believes who and who's been controlled and sure. where's consent and where the lines are all blurred. Mm. And also, we grew up in a group where the adults were protected. They all had you know, pseudonyms, they all, they were all, when they were reborn, everyone changed their names is how do you even track? It's very Mm. few people who've actually been able to track down the, you know, the people that abused them or assaulted Mm. them within the group. It's, it's, it's very difficult. I still don't know the names of the people that were responsible for what happened to us. You know, we, in the book of call them like, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan Clay and Mary Malaysia, these are all completely made up names. So finding them and tracking them down is, is, is nigh on impossible. Mm. What would you like to do with your life still, Bexie? I mean, I just can't believe the life that I have. If I think about, you know, when I talk about being that child and what she imagined in her future, she didn't think she had one. I think about that 14, 15-year-old who had this idea of being, you know, a, a great job, a legal secretary. And I think about how things have turned out where I'm in a loving relationship. I have, you know, a great job. I've written a book, which I never even thought. And then I think about, like, one of the most brilliant things that's ever happened. Writing the book made me fall in love with writing. I mean, you you had that yeah, experience we, yeah, too. With, yeah. yeah. And just, isn't it amazing to come to that where you're like, hang on, I didn't even know. I, I don't know if you were the same. I didn't even know I loved this. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I feel like I'm falling in love. It's like a door has been opened. Yeah. yeah. Like, what? Mm. It's it's so how good is it it's mm, brilliant right it's to brilliant. have that to get to this stage in life you're like oh my god I've found a new love <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've, I've just I've just started at Goldsmiths doing a creative um, writing master no way yeah I'm three weeks in and it's blowing my mind wow I'm like oh I'm in university and like I'm like oh my god I'm it's, jealous I want to do that <laughs> come along it's yeah. brilliant it's so good and I'm reading all these you know if, if you told me that Chekhov was a type of flu three weeks ago I would have believed you and now I'm like <laughs> reading away and trying not to sound stupid in front of all these extremely smart people in like yeah. a university it's really wild but to be honest with you I'm just like I'm so chuffed I'm like so grateful for this this life that that somehow I've ended up having it's it's insane well I thank you so much for coming on here and telling your story and thank I you. wish you every 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 inch of happiness uh, for this next phase of your life <laughs> thank you so much I'm so grateful to Bexie Cameron for her generosity in telling that story of hers one more time for the changes podcast and I really urge you if you were gripped all the way through like me and producer Frank were 
to like and subscribe and leave a review, pass it around to your friends, but of course, buy her book. It's so, so well written. Um, you know, you heard what she said about writing. She really can write. The book is called Cult Following and you will be as gripped to the book as you were to the conversation. Hey, thank you for all of your messages with regards to last week's episode with Nick Grimshaw. I'm still getting them and they're flooding in from people uh, all over the world just talking about how inspiring they found it. Um, Hello, Nikki, who said, I really enjoyed this chat. I'm 40 next week and feeling all the changes. Happy birthday, Nikki. Kate said, absolutely love this. I've just quit my job and a career I've spent the last 15 years building. I'm here for a rehang. Good luck with the rehang, Kate. I love the, the idea of that being a new thing. Hey guys, let's rehang. It's time to rehang. Right, we're going to be back next week with more changes. My producer is Frank Palmer. It's been a pleasure bringing this week's episode to you and I will see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.